Good day. Welcome to the Corey Morgan Show. As again, I am Corey Morgan, and this is my weekly production here with the Western Standard. We cover political issues, social issues, just whatever's kind of hitting the news or whatever's uh, getting under uh, a burn my saddle at any given time, and I get it on my system. We also have interesting guests, news updates, and all that good stuff. This show is running live when we record it anyways, and I know some of you are picking up in a recorded setting as well. So by all means, if you're watching the live version, guys, throw those comments in there. I appreciate them. I see them all. I won't necessarily read them all out, but uh, I, I do like seeing them. And uh, hey, feel free to chat with each other on things as well. Just, I know it's easier said than done sometimes, guys, but let's keep it civil there. So good to see you checking in there, Paradoxy Night Shift. And uh, somebody talking about my haircut and no tie. Yes, I, I got out of wearing a tie around here. The haircut, uh, I don't know, I'm a little mixed on it. But, you know, I've never been much of a fashion maven. I'm too hung up on the issues. So in a little while, I'm going to have a, my guest for today is Dr. Dean Voss of the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. I've really been looking forward to this. I've covered addiction issues, treatment issues a lot over the last few years. Uh, you know, I've had a direct experience in some ways. I am a recovering alcoholic. I've always been open about that. It doesn't make me an expert in these issues, but it does make me understand and certainly empathize when you've got something that's uh, taking you in a direction you don't really want to go, a self-destructive self sort of path, and how uh, I understand how important it is to have support and help to get yourself out of that. So talking to somebody who works and specializes in helping people get out of that awful uh, cycle of addiction is going to be something very good to uh, look forward to because we've had that discussion hitting the Alberta election lately. Uh, Premier Daniel Smith has uh, announced what she's kind of called a compassionate intervention and possibly examining having compelled treatment or bringing people in uh, to treatment uh, versus I think some of the other options such as jail or other areas. Just We've really got to try and get this, this under grips. So it'll be, it'll be a really good conversation. So I'm going to stay on that theme a little bit in some of the politics and uh, the Alberta election with one of the things that's got me wound up today. So uh, again, it's re regarding um, uh, Daniel Smith. So last weekend, we had some healthcare statistics quietly released with a little fanfare. You know, when they drop it on the weekend, they're not really looking for people to pay much attention to it. And uh, today, Legacy Media, of course, has already forgotten those statistics. And it's a pity because uh, the dramatic improvement in waiting times for ambulances due to new policies implemented by the UCP should be making headlines right now. As recently as last fall, Albertans were dying, literally dying while waiting for ambulance services. One of the worst cases was an elderly woman who bled out after a dog attack just minutes away from Calgary's largest hospital. She had to wait 40 minutes for an ambulance to arrive. We had red alert periods in Calgary and Edmonton where there were no ambulances available at all. It was commonplace. Meanwhile, rural ambulances would get pulled into urban centers, and then rural firefighters and uh, police officers had to take on paramedic roles as they desperately tried to transport injured people to hospitals. Now, paramedics and citizens have been raising concerns about this issue for years. We've had multiple governments paying lip service to the problem, but none have done really anything aside from tossing more money at the issue, and it didn't have much effect. Until now. Daniel Smith raised the EMS crisis as an issue while running for the UCP leadership, and she promised to act upon it when she became premier. Well, last December, the Smith government announced changes that were going to be made to improve EMS response times. To begin with, vans were going to be equipped and contracted for use in non-emergency transfers of patients. Ambulances and trained paramedic teams have been doing that for up to 75 trips a day when they weren't really in need of emergency services, these transports. Meanwhile, of course, emergencies are happening. The NDP predictably responded with hysterics and accused Smith of wanting to harm patients by using Ubers instead of ambulances. 
in those cases, despite the hyperbole from the NDP, Uber actually is often a more appropriate uh, option than a fully equipped ambulance for a non-emergency patient transfer. Smith also vowed to increase physicians, nurses, and other resources for triage in emergency rooms to reduce the time paramedics are stuck doing hallway care because the hospitals weren't admitting the patients being dropped off. And we've had at times as many as 20 ambulances piled up outside of hospitals as paramedics can't find hospital staff willing to take the patients. NDP health critic David Shepard panned the plan saying, I can't see this announcement being anything but an incredible disappointment to Alberta's paramedics and frontline healthcare workers. And the UCP government also started to set timelines for emergency rooms to take patients. Then again, the NDP accused the government of forcing paramedics to dump and run with patients, which was utterly untrue. Hospitals were expected to admit patients from ambulances in less than 40 minutes. That's not an unreasonable request. So now it's been a few months and the numbers are in and they look fantastic. In November of 2022, so just last November, Alberta, well, Calgary was in a state of EMS red alert for 4.2 hours. In one month, 4.2 hours, the city of Calgary, 1.4 million people had no ambulances. Last April, that number was down to four minutes. Four minutes, that was it. That's quite a reduction. Ambulance response times last November, they averaged 22 minutes in urban areas and 64 minutes in rural zones. That's a pretty long time if you're in serious, serious condition. Well, last April, those response times had dropped to 12 minutes in urban areas and 40 in rural areas. This is life-saving, folks. And the silence on this success is deafening. There's no doubt about this. Lives are going to be saved thanks to the changes made by the UCP to EMS policies. We should be shouting this from the rooftops and examining more common sense approaches to healthcare bottlenecks in the system. Unfortunately, partisan loathing of Daniel Smith has rendered the establishment and legacy media outlets incapable of crediting Smith with doing something right. The bloated Alberta Health Services bureaucracy has created an inefficient healthcare system incapable of embracing change or innovation in care. And in firing the inept board of the uh, health services and forcing common sense solutions to the problems, Smith's actually managed to bring about quick success with a crisis that hadn't seen improvement in over a decade. Now Smith is taking a strong, no-nonsense approach with taking on the addiction epidemic as well. She's surrounding herself with treatment specialists and recovered addicts rather than listening to the usual suspects in the establishment who insist on further enablement policies. Enablement policies for addicts have failed and they're failing throughout North America. Overdoses are continuing to climb while the number of addicted people keeps growing. We need results-based policy rather than aspirational ideological PAP. Smith seems to be willing to cut through the BS and impose policies that work rather than pursuing policies that feel good. If Smith loses the election due to an establishment that refuses to accept positive changes, the healthcare system and the addicts in need of treatment will all suffer for it. If we can't credit a success, we're never going to see more of it. And that's what's kind of got me wound up, guys. I mean, really, you know, what I'd like to almost see even is have some NDP supporters or just former conservatives who can't stand uh, Premier Smith saying, I can't stand her, I still won't vote for her, but hey, she did something right and we need more of that. So we'll embrace that policy. I mean, you, you, you can give a backhanded compliment at least, but don't just suppress this, don't ignore this. It's so rare when we see policy successes in anything, it seems, you know, with government. And this was really not a long, and that was the di difference this time. She didn't go into saying, we're going to strike a committee and listen to some results and talk and discuss it for the next two years, you know. She didn't say we're going to have another commission or have another study. She said, here's the problem, here's a few solutions, and here's what we're going to do. She didn't dither and mess around. And now we're seeing a quick 
positive outcome from it. Hey, if it had been a failure, you know, you know, we would certainly be hearing a lot about it. All I want to see is results-based policies. I honestly will vote for who will get me results. If Smith's policies fail, I wouldn't vote for Smith. If Rachel Notley, I'm not an NDP fan, but if she's putting forth policies that work on things like that, healthcare or addiction and saving lives, that's the sort of thing that's going to win my vote. But we just don't seem to allow ourselves to give credit to somebody else when they get something right. And that's that's not good for any of us. We're not going to get more positive solutions. We don't encourage our politicians to get positive things done. And it's also a, an indication of just how slanted, unfortunately, our establishment and legacy media have gotten. I mean, they did report that initial story, and it was a very good article. It was in the Herald. I'll give credit where that's due. But then that's all you heard about it. Like, this should be a big deal, and it's already being forgotten. Not good. Not good for any of us. Um, Let's see uh, where we're going to go here. I'm going to talk about another thing. This is something that disturbed me a little bit. I saw uh, some poll numbers that came out in Canada, across Canada. I had a guest on. Uh, he was one of the first proponents. He was a lawyer from way back in the days with Sue Rodriguez, for folks who remember that. Uh, that was assisted suicide. It was a big issue. Now we've got this uh, medical uh, assistance in dying, and uh, is what we call it, made. And, uh, you know, it's, it's where you're going to have medical intervention to, to help somebody pass away if, if they've, uh, you know, chosen to. And I think a lot of people... Don't have a problem with that as long as the person is, I guess, terminal in their right mind and, and, and makes that decision, you know, a personal decision that that may be, uh, that possibly that's something they can offer. But it's already getting far and beyond, I think, what anybody reasonable would expect of it. I mean, we were talking about using medical assistance and death for people with nothing aside from a mental health issue. Well, hang on a minute. I, that's not somebody who's in their right mind. This is not somebody necessarily making a rational decision. And this is problematic. And, and when I spoke with that lawyer who talked to us, he says, yes, you know, when he was out there with Sven Robinson and talking about Sue Rodriguez, who had a terminal physiological problem going on, a painful one, a debilitating one, that, that's what you, they were looking at, not somebody who's suffering from chronic depression or, or, or some of those, again, very debilitating conditions, absolutely. But these are not people who are in a good position to choose whether they, they want to live or die. I listened to one bizarre statement from a federal cabinet minister when he said, don't worry, we will never apply this, we'll never allow medical assistance in dying to somebody who's suicidal. Wait a minute. Think about that for a second. We won't give somebody the choice to choose to end their life if they plan to choose to end their life. Talk about pure liberal baffle gab. So I'm not talking about though, throwing out the whole medical assistance dying. I'm just saying we got to be careful with it. Now, this poll, getting back to it, this is from a, a research company poll. One third of Canadians apparently are fine with prescribing assisted suicide for no other reason than the fact that the patient is poor or homeless. Folks, really? Really? I mean, so is that where we've come to? When you see it's so hopeless because somebody's poor or homeless that we're just better off just to let them end it all rather than try to pursue recovery and bring them back up on their feet and get them rolling. One third of Canadians thought that was an acceptable path for people in that condition. I, I hope this poll is an outlier. I hope this poll is, is, is wrong. I, I hope it was phrased poorly to the people who answered it because that, that, that's horrible, guys. One third of us thinking, hey, well, gee, that guy's homeless. He's, he's in such terrible condition and everything, and he looks so miserable. Yeah, you know what? We'll offer you a way out. Here you go. We're not going to help you get on your feet, get a job, get a home, get your uh, mental health issues in order. But, hey, 
we can uh, take you to your grave. That's really one third of people think that's all right. I, 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 I sometimes weep for society. You know, I, I'm crabby. I'm negative on here a lot, but I try to maintain some degree of positivity. I mean, I guess two thirds of, of Canadians uh, realize that, no, this is not a good idea. But I just would have thought that'd be the kind of poll question where, you know, you're talking 5%, 10% maybe. And you're always going to get some people calling for ridiculous things. But a third, uh, again, I... I where have we come to where we just rather let people die than, than try to things get better? Uh, you know, so I'm looking at, at some of the, the comments here, and it'll help uh, bring things up. Where we're talking about when people think things are beyond hope, they aren't. And there's fantastic success stories all over the place. There are. So, I mean, medically assisted death for anything other than a physiological terminal condition is, is not a success. That's a failure. That's a, an avoidance. That's a, that's a horrific approach to something. I see uh, commenter Kiera Brady, I could be mispronouncing that, I, I'm brutalized people's names on this show on a regular basis, saying compassionate intervention without question saved my son at 17 when we almost lost him. I'm so grateful that at last someone has finally had the courage to address this issue. Kids are dying. And they are dying. They're dying a lot. And they're, they're everybody's kids. Don't, don't just think just because you're doing all right that it can't happen to you or it can't happen to your nieces or nephews or your father or uncles. This addiction epidemic is getting everybody. And I've said it before on this show, and I've been shocked. Maybe it's part of the age I'm at. You know, most of my uh, contemporaries have kids that are either into their teens or early 20s. Now, I know three different people who have lost sons to overdoses. Three. One was methadone. One was, uh, yeah, methadone isn't necessarily safe, guys. It could be very dangerous if misapplied. And, and two more with, with, with drug, you know, they call them poisonings. It's overdoses. And these were fine kids from stable families. They, they just, whatever, for whatever reason, got into the, the, the crap, and it led to the worst possible outcome. And we need to intervene. This is growing. This is getting bad. I, I, I shouldn't have to know three people who have had to suffer that. I, I wish I never knew anybody who had to suffer that. And it's growing. So with all that buildup, I'm going to bring in my guest. He knows a heck of a lot more on this subject than I do. And he's dedicated decades to helping people get out of that cycle addiction. Um, that is, uh, I'll just bring my scroll up here and make sure I don't mess it up. Dr. Dean Voss of the Alberta Adolescent Recovery Center. So uh, Dr. Voss, thank you very much for, for joining us today. My pleasure. So uh, I, I guess, you know, we've seen something of a turning point with... Uh, this coming into the election, I mean, uh, Premier Smith has talked about this issue a lot, and I've been happy to see that. But with her, her recent press conference, uh, she, she's broached the issue, I guess, of, of uh, imposing treatment upon people. But maybe I'll back up a bit before we get to that. You, you've worked, of course, for, for decades in treating youth and treating people with addiction. Uh, and you've had a great deal of success stories. Like the fact that somebody who has received treatment is certainly much more likely to break free of addiction than somebody without. We'll start from there. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me and carrying this message. I came to Calgary 33 years ago and uh, I started on the reserves of Saskatchewan and uh, CAMSAC and the Code A Reserve and had the highest suicide rate in Canada. I went and worked in the States and I started my doctoral work out of Cincinnati was living in Vancouver and I came here 33 years ago and the research was not good about reaching youth and that's what I speak to. I don't speak to adults, although we treat families, but I'll speak to the youth issue that youth were dying 
Uh, it was a pandemic. And I didn't know if we could really help these kids because from the academic research and programs to reach these kids, they just weren't available. So I spent five years with an incredible doctoral team before we even got out of the chutes, uh, developing our model. So 33 years later, um, came to believe, came to know that there's a solution and we can reach these kids. It's just like you said, the most agonizing thing I've ever faced is a parent losing their child. And that includes like from the Coday Reserve. Today, Coday Reserve has the highest HIV rate in Canada. What's changed? Well, what's changed for us in Calgary and, and the kids we treat, we came to believe, came to know that we can help these kids. But it's tough. It's complex. Uh, it's the toughest thing I've ever done. But I want to tell you, it's also the best thing I've ever done. But it's labor intensive. It's high risk. And who wants to wade into these kids that, want, that don't want to stop? And they, they're dying. And so that's where I've spent 33 years seeking a solution to help those kids, 365, 24-7. It's a tough business, but majority of our kids, and I've sent this to you and I can show you this, is the research. Like when you talk about, I can have the anecdotal stuff, which is very powerful. I keep saying to my kids and parents, uh, uh, you not only have a message, you are the message. But to validate what we're doing, I've had to look at the legal, legal aspects of it. I had to look at the clinical aspects. How do you deliver a program? How do you raise the money to keep it going? How do you access government support? It's very complex, but we've never varied, Corey, from our primary purpose of reaching that kid every day. And we believe, came to believe, came to know. We know how tough it is. We know it's high risk, but we know that we have a solution. So I can get going on this. and But I think what Danielle Smith and Marshall Smith and these guys have done is given us a voice to share our message that there is a solution for these kids, but you've got to raise the bottom. They are so sick. They are so mentally ill that they cannot stop. And there's nothing more painful than a parent watching their kid deteriorate in front of them. And it's hopeless, but to help them, that's what we work on every day, Corey. Yeah, and it's a big long-term thing, and it's not simple. I mean, treatment for somebody when, when they're heavily addicted uh, can take, uh, I, I believe, it was three to eight months typically with, with what you guys offer. And, and sometimes the results you're looking at over 50% will, will, will stay clean. But some people say, well, boy, then, then half aren't making it. But, I mean, it's, it's far, far better than people who don't get treatment at all. And that's what people have to understand, that if left alone, right. the, the, uh, the, the outlook for a person who's heavily into addiction it can, can, it is not good. Well, I think what's the success rate of these kids in 1989-90 was very, very low. It wasn't 50%. In fact, we know from our research, I had to go outside of the province to go to the Treatment Resorts Institute, for instance, with Dr. Winters and Dr. Area to validate academically our program. I, like you talked earlier about results. I'm into results. Otherwise, three, 33 years... Uh, I'm looking, I want success. My job is for that kid in the first chair who doesn't want help, that's really sick, that's addicted to drugs. I want to see results. So with our research, 
I've had to validate art, fight this in our own community and province to show academically that the majority of our kids stay clean and sober. That's ridiculous number. But I've had to go outside. I can provide that research. The other research, there, there's our research, Dr. Rinters, Dr. Aria, which is published, that our average length of stay in treatment is 277 days. It's not rehab. It's habilitation of taking a kid and setting them up to win. Treat the addiction. We have a psychiatrist. We have multiple people that will help this kid. It's labor intensive. So we know that it's average stay. Is, it's going to take time. So why do those kids stick around ARC? Why do those kids stick around for 277 days? Because they know they can win. Now, some don't, but the majority do. The other part, our research from Patton in 2004 and Winters and Aria, three, three studies say that eight out of 10 kids that start the program finish. Now that's 277 days. These kids are in treatment. Level three and four, they go out to school, they go out to their community, we habilitate them. The number one predictor of success in the research of kids that are sober after treatment doing good in their life is it's called retention. So 80%, we've got two major studies that say 80% of our kids complete treatment and have a better chance of making it out in life. And we're treating kids that nobody wants to treat because we got to raise the bottom because they can't see they're so sick that they're, they are killing themselves. So what's the option? Let them die? Well, and that's so it. a parent that and, says, and yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah, and I see a couple of the commenters. It sounds like their children have gone through your, your program and they, they really appreciate it. And they, they're using that term compassionate intervention because that seems to be the part that some people are hung up on is you have to intervene. Even if the person initially perhaps isn't necessarily willing to go into treatment, uh, they've had the parents intervening on their behalf or other loved ones. And then and, and you, you aid with that. Uh, and as you pointed out as well, it's a mental health issue. So, I mean, they're mm -hmm. not necessarily making good choices initially. You, you need to stabilize the, their thinking. So that's right. Where you begin intervention. Well, I think going back to this, parents have rights and I'm talking about youth and the issue is capacity. When they're mentally ill, the parent has a responsibility and the right to help them and protect them. And so legally it, it comes down to capacity and a parent having rights here to save their kid. They've been everywhere by the time they get to me. They've been through the system. So where do you start? You start by talking to other people, I guess. That's the best referral to me is other parents that have gone through this, that have been shattered, that found hope, put their families back together. It's the same thing with my staff. I work with a team of miracles. They've all been through it. Now they're getting masters and uh, getting educated. They know there's a solution. And so where do you start? Well, I've been there 33 years, Corey. There's nothing I haven't seen. There's nothing, uh, the attacks, uh, trying to access government support. What Danielle Smith is doing, I am astonished at her stepping in and having the courage to step in. And it is compassionate. You love These parents love their kids. That's compassion. It's compassion for us. We care about those kids. They will ultimately get better because they'll tell you they know we care. And it's in our simple actions of stepping into that disease with a solution. Hope 
is in human form at ARC. That's my whole staff of carrying that message. Not only the staff, but the parents to get their its results. And that's what kept us alive over all these years. Now the government stepped up, which I think is incredible, to support us in helping intervening with kids and raising the bottom and helping them get help when they don't want help because they can't see it, they're too sick. Yeah, so something that unfortunately has gotten very politicized and, and you know, we've really kind of polarized this, unfortunately, rather than just looking at results, is uh, issues of safe supply or harm reduction. Like I'm kind of on the fence with some of that. If, I mean, if an addict is dead, well, we can't help them. So if we could, you know, keep them from dying on the street and hopefully get them into treatment soon, there's a role for harm reduction. But some people seem to see harm reduction as if it's an end or that you could facilitate an ongoing addiction and it could be functional. And I think that's where the trouble starts beginning. Well, I, I'm not against harm reduction. Hmm. And you're looking at the continuum of care and the continuum of recovery. So certain people, if, if they don't have to come to ARC and they can cut down and not destroy their lives, I'm all for harmful reduction. But when you reach a point, and there's many, many kids, our research is showing, these kids have passed the stage of harmful reduction. They will use till they die. You step in front of their disease, it's going to be nasty because they're addicts. So ours is abstinence. I don't, you know, I've been at this 35 years. I don't see any other solution for my kids. I've seen kids go back. Some majority of our kids make it. Some go back out. They die because they start using again and they progress back right back into the disease. So it's very difficult to treat them. But when you have the majority of the kids getting better, like I have, I just had my gal of 31 years. How many of those kids are contributing to society? The best part of my job, Corey, to me, because I'm a senior citizen now, is watching my graduates be parents of their kids. And they're good parents and they're good people. And they know that they have a solution. So they're the best message I have. On the other part, I have had to look at the academic stuff. Our results speak for themselves. It's high-end, solid research from outside people. The other part is looking at the legal part. Parents have rights. Kids are sick. So that's the stuff that gets all thrown into the, into the part of a kid that's so sick, they don't have the capacity. And a parent has, I believe, the right to step in and do what's going to help that kid or give him a chance anyway. That's what we're doing. We're giving him more than a chance. We're giving him hope. But it's hope in human form. Because the kids that you may have seen or talked to, they'll tell you, without an intervention, they're dead. So what do we got to lose, Corey? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's well and, and thought out. It's not just... We're, we're throwing this at you. 33 years of research and experience, and we have a message. Now we have a government, and I hope whether it's Danielle or Notley, come and support us, man. We're saving kids. It's not even a political issue. It's an addiction issue. That's right. It, it shouldn't be. And, and as you pointed right. out, I mean, still, it's a very resource intensive. You guys have been fantastic with your gala and fundraising and, and things, but it's still never quite enough. I mean, it, and with a government, hopefully, that seems no matter which government, more inclined to help fund these spaces because that's what you need and the resources and the, and the professionals right. to help. Uh, it, it's so important. I mean, we, we shouldn't look at it as an expense. I think you look at it as an investment because as you see, the of sober totally. grown children, we, we have a much better uh, world for it all around. 
So I, I knew 15 minutes wouldn't be long enough. I know I'm going to have to talk to you again sometime down the road. Anytime. It's a, a Anytime. Uh, but you sent me some fantastic uh, studies and statistics and documents. Is Where can they find those online and where can they find your organization if they want to donate or if perhaps they need help or anything like Just that? Just look up Alberta Adolescent Recovery Centre. We have a website. Same thing with the research. I think that's very important, Corey, is the research of validating that this program after 30 years is showing pragmatic, real results. But that val that just allows me to go in there today, which we're doing, to carry the message and save kids. When we get people behind us, and I've never seen this in 30 years, the, the, what, what Danielle and the UCP are doing, and, and hopefully NDP, Notley, that can see that we have valid results academically but most important is the families if we did an economic study of all those kids that are out in the community working going to school 30 years it's a huge investment in our youth but i want to just clarify and i and i get going on this but saving a life there's nothing better but this is tough hard business those parents love their kids they're committed to come walking in the door of ARC. And that's the model. We've created a unique model that's working. So now let's get out and carry it to other communities. Best thing we do is is be do what we're doing here today, carry the message. So thanks for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Voss, and for the work you do and, and for sharing that with us. And I really do hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you. So again, guys, that was, yes, Dr. Uh, Dean Voss of the Alberta Adolescent Recovery uh, Center. And, you know, it's powerful, right? And, and as you can see, it's so much work. And I see a lot of the commenters, people have been looking forward to hearing from it. I mean, it's just such a good sign right there. You can see there's people who that center has helped. It's helped their children. It's helped them. Night shift uh, saying uh, uh, Dr. Voss saved his family. Tony Brady saying uh, AARC saved my, my son and family. Uh, what a team. And that's the other thing, you know, to be mentioned, there's a whole bunch of people involved in that, a whole, and what a tough job. I mean, it's like nurses in, in any other medical ward or doctors or, or health professionals. I mean, you have to be so strong to deal with when things don't go the way you want and still get up in the morning and get in there and keep working on it. And uh, this is so, so worthwhile. Uh, Jamie Johnson, after 12 overdoses and multiple suicide attempts, my son's not talking about a future, including university. Thank you to the doc and his staff. Melody James, compassionate intervention, saved my son's life. Uh, Dr. Voss and his team taught my, him and my family the way out. Like the, the, the comments are just coming and coming. And, uh, you know, Desiree Pressy, most of his staff have been through treatment. They're living examples of what recovery looks like. And uh, that's another thing. And that's what, with a lot of recovery uh, groups and organizations, uh, you know, it, it starts to become anecdotal. And sometimes you see the academics poo-pooing that or pushing it aside. But no, there's a reason you see Things like, again, yes, I, I, I'm a, a member of, of Bill W's group. We're talking about groups where you can get together with other people who have suffered through the addiction you have because that's how you can lend support to each other because somebody who hasn't endured that, while they might mean the absolute best and might have all sorts of things they can help, you can't beat having somebody who's directly known how to deal with that. It's very important. And every situation is a little different too. Some people have harder times. Some people have easier times. It's, it's just such a, there's no cookie cutter approach and you need as, as many all hands on deck. 
And uh, Karen Mitchell saying rehabilitation is better than jail or the grave. And, and that's some of the stuff I wrote about before because people talk about when we're talking about intervention, whether it's adults or whether it's children, see, we've got to maintain the, the dignity of, of folks in addiction and we can't infringe on their liberty. Well, when they've hit the streets, when it's gotten that bad, that, that bad, that far along, are, are they really at liberty anymore? No, they're a slave to their addiction. They don't have liberty. They, they can't think for themselves any longer. And, you know, that's the path. Unfortunately, as Karen pointed out, if there's not an intervention or treatment or something, once it's hit that point, chances are they probably will end up either dead or, or in jail or in hospital. You know, it, it's just bad all around. We've got to try and, and, and seeing successes. That's what we need to hear. And that's what we need to talk about. And this is results-based policy. This ties into what I was talking about with the ambulances and things like that. I just want to see what works. And Dr. Voss has shown a 30-year plan that works, not for everybody, but for the majority. We know what doesn't work, and that's facilitating, enabling, or sitting back and just letting it happen, because that's kind of what some people think is going to work. Uh, Kathy Terpstra, my 15-year-old daughter was in the depths of heavy drug use. I reached my uh, bottom and found AARC. They taught my daughter how to live a, f a sober life and how to live as well. I mean, that's part of it, too. Uh, Again, I'm more familiar with the alcohol end of things, but you got to help the family. You got to help the loved ones. It's bigger than just the addict. Uh, there's Al-Anon you've probably heard of. Well, the reason for that is because it's not just the alcoholic who needs help. It's, it's now the people who've been impacted by that alcoholism. It's a huge, overwhelming thing. And, and, and it does, though, lead to a payoff. Jolene Steenson, my mom put me into ARC at 17. I wanted to use drugs until I died. I'm grateful they stepped in front of me. Even when I didn't want the help, now I've been sober for 10 years and I'm in university. See, we all win. If you want to be a cold, calculating, true conservative like they talk about, oh, you're just the, uh, you know, heartless, you're just looking at the dollars and bottom line, fine, fine. Look at it that way. Let us be that way. We are already spending a whole pile of money on untreated addicts because they're in the health system. They are in the social services system. They're in the prison system. They're in our mental health facilities. So you're already paying. So let's pay to have people recover. Let's pay to have them out and feeling better and living and being happy and having a job and paying taxes and putting back in. But they've got to have help and you've got to have intervention. So it's been so good. I mean, again, I know. I mean, I run an opinion show, so I'm biased. But I mean, I don't care who does it. I want to see recovery in, in this. And if Premier Smith brings that in successfully, really brings it along, we're all going to win with that. Because we haven't seen a Premier, you know, uh, I'll credit Jason Kenney with some of it. He started talking about expanding treatment spaces, and, and nobody really had been talking about that that much. And when he was finished, they'd been up to 8,000 spaces available. BC only had, I believe, 3,600. And that's a province with more people and definitely a much more acute addiction problem going on than ours. And, uh, and we've got uh, more treatment ability. Last January, Alberta actually saw a reduction in overdoses. No other province could say that. Everywhere else, this is a problem. It's growing. And that's because we've had more treatment ability, but we still need more. I mean, you only have to go out in the streets, ride a train, or talk to friends, family, and loved ones, because everybody seems to know somebody who's in this condition who needs to be helped, who needs to be fixed up. So, uh, uh, Dora, I'll finish the, the comments and get on to, to more subjects here. Dora Moali, well, I'm so sorry. I'm so awful with names. There's where I need an intervention. I get people got to teach me how to pronounce names. Uh, I said, AARC saved... Two of my kids saved our family and my marriage. If not for AARC, my kids would be dead. 
And there, as Dora said as well, not just uh, the kids, but the marriage and the family. This is big. This is big. This tears families apart. This can uh, be terrible. So I, I'm just glad to see the message of positivity and hear so many success stories. I know there's, there's a lot of stories that unfortunately didn't uh, lead to a success. Uh, something I've talked about on the show as well, I mean, I, I went through recently, because of course we're getting a lot of the uh, experts, you know, experts, right? you put that in quotes whenever you talk about it, uh, talking about intervention and saying you can't uh, force somebody against their will. Well, under the Alberta Mental Health Act and every other province, uh, so we're getting onto the adult stage of it, perhaps. I mean, it's different with a minor because the parents, is, as, as Dr. Voss pointed out, have some rights and they can intervene. With an adult, you, you don't quite have those rights. But under the Mental Health Act, we, I had to have a family member committed uh, about a month ago. I've talked about that on the show. And it's a process and it's not easy, nor should it be. You don't want somebody frivolously committed, not by any means. If they haven't committed a crime, you don't want them restrained. But if it's evident they're going to harm themselves or others, that's where the bar is then for their sake and everybody's sake, we have to take them in and try and help and help and deal with this. That applies with addicts in the late stages. If we can do this with somebody who's a, a you know, a schizophrenia has gone out of control or a bipolar disorder. Well, if they're heavily addicted to fentanyl or methamphetamines or something like that, I don't see why it's unreasonable to say this person's going to harm themselves or others. And we have to take them in to try and deal with it. That's not an unreasonable ask. I understand some people, uh, I mean, I have a, a large libertarian audience who very much don't like see people's liberties uh, infringed upon. Of course not. I don't want to see it either. It's a last resort. It's a last resort. But we have to have that last resort. And, uh, you know, because otherwise the, the, the path is bad. All right. So I'm going to turn pages on this. We're going to talk about this more, of course. You know, it's always been a subject that's been big with me and we'll certainly follow up more. And I really hope to see more success and more discussion of it. I really hope to see the NDP just starting to look at things such as the numbers from Dr. Voss, the, the press conference that Premier Notley did with chiefs from First Nations, for, uh, with uh, recovered addicts, people like that to show this can be a success and have Notley say, yes, we can do the same thing. And they, hey, they're campaigning. They can say, we can do it better. Okay, good. Just as long as somebody's doing it. I don't care who does it. I really don't. So uh, let's just keep pushing on that, guys. Even if you don't like the current government, fine. Then push the other uh, party to, to, to push more onto a, a treatment-based thing. All right. Let's see. I got to cool things down, maybe or at least in a different way. Uh, it still gets the, the blood pressure up. Let's look, go through some news items before we, we get on to the uh, agricultural check-in and stuff like that. Because uh, as we can see, I could go on about this, and there's lots to go on about for a while. Uh, so Governor General Mary Simon, yes, you know, boy, speaking of ways, speaking of money that could be better invested elsewhere, uh, she billed $38,000 for her wardrobe in the last 16 months. Yes, clothing. Clothing, you know, again, we got we got addiction centers that need money, but we're giving our governor general $38,000 for silk jackets, cocktail dresses, accessories. Her salary is $342,000 to be Canada's chief ribbon cutter. Because she's just a ceremonial position. That's it. And she can't buy her own bloody clothes. She gets a free house. She gets free travel. And while she travels, she spends $90,000 for food catering for her and her entourage on a one-week trip. I wish I was making those numbers up. And she's also dinging us. $38,000 for clothing. Yes, we should be upset. There are better things to spend our money on. This country is a mess. Speaking of people's wasting money, then, let's look at our finance minister, Christia Freeland. People watching the federal scene have seen there's been uh, the budgets being pushed through, the 
uh, filibustering that's going on. There's people, uh, uh, you know, the conservatives are trying to hold it up because it's a massive spending budget yet again. Uh, Freeland testified for 90 minutes at the Finance Committee to try and break the filibuster. But she says the debt charges are absolutely handleable. We've got a, over a trillion dollars in uh, uh, debt now. So we're talking 50, I believe, getting close to 50 billion a year. We're going to spend just on interest. Uh, you know, we're running out of money for very important things. I'll throw another uh, commenter in there, Tom uh, Muskia. I'm probably running your name again. Sorry, Tom. But thank you for commenting, saying, yay, RC, save my kids' lives. It's a huge commitment, but a small price to pay. Save my kids' lives. See, we have money in this country. We have resources. But we're letting our inept or indifferent, uh, wasteful politicians piss that money away on things like outfits for the governor general or just borrowing and throwing money blindly at programs or subsidizing things while we spend, again, we're going to get up to $50 billion a year on interest payments. Imagine what we could do for our country with that $50 billion then. Let's look at it. Whenever we're going to talk about, again, addiction and mental health. Uh, that would be $5 billion a year you could give to every province in the country just to spend on addiction and mental health. Could you imagine how positively that would impact crime rates, uh, healthcare rates, uh, you know, tourism even? I'm seriously, I mean, downtowns and cities and across Canada right now, you can't go into them. In Toronto, you know, the, the stabathon on public transit is, is unbelievable. Likewise in Calgary, Edmonton, Vancouver. 50 billion a year, though, we're flushing on interest. There, there's one of those cognitive dissonance things I see with socialists that don't seem to understand. They hate big business. Oh, they, they can't stand seeing corporate institutions making money out of the taxpayers, but they don't have a problem spending 50 billion in interest. Well, who do you think that interest is going to, guys? Small business? You think it's the mom and pop government lender down the road? <laughs> no. That $50 billion is going into the pockets of big money folks, guys. So quit borrowing. Quit spending on stupid things, such as the governor general's uh, little trips and uh, wardrobe. Eh, easier said than done. I don't know. I mean, we let politicians buy our love. We're seeing that in, Cal in, in Alberta. And to be fair, one of the areas that, uh, you know, uh, Premier Smith has been getting a lot of critique from, and, and I, I'm critical of it as well, of course, is they're doing the usual thing of campaigning and just promising, spending, 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 buying our love. It's our fault. We respond to it. The reason they do that is we vote for whoever's going to blow the most sunshine up our keisters and uh, whoever's going to spend the most on it. So, uh, of course, uh, you know, our budgets get unsustainable, and, and uh, uh, Premier Smith's budget hasn't been looking terribly uh conservative by a lot of you know, measures. And we still got another 10 days left. So if we want to see more conservatism, I think we're going to have to get better at it, aren't we? Uh, here's another beauty, you know, with our programs, it shows the inefficiency of them. The Canada Greener Homes Grant, you know, this is one, we're going to make everybody green. And uh, let's see, this one's supposed to support 700,000 homeowners with uh, uh, grants for retrofits, you know, make your place a little greener, save a little on energy. Uh, well, if it's free money, if it's five grand each, whether you like it or not, most people say, yeah, I'll go in for that. But somehow, even though they launched this thing uh, two years ago, only 40%, 41% of the target ever actually applied for it. And, uh, you know, uh, of those, uh, yeah, so 287,000 applied and only 60,000 qualified. But, I mean, we're talking about these numbers. 
They were looking to support over to 700,000 people with $5,000 each. This is a lot of money for a program that doesn't appear to be doing a damn thing, except for employing thousands and thousands of pointy-headed bureaucrats who get a heck of a lot of money to keep talking about this and moving paper from here to there and there to here whilst not actually getting any decent outcomes or results from it. So, uh, yeah, we, we've got money to spare, guys. We just need to spend it better. But, uh, again, you know, uh, if my aunt had testicles, she'd be my uncle, right? I mean, you can wish for things, but uh, it doesn't necessarily mean they come about. But we'll keep pushing and keep hoping for some responsible things. Okay, let's pivot a little. I've been ranting quite a bit for a while. Let my, my blood pressure come down a little bit and uh, check in with, with Jim Buzicum and, and uh, see what's happening out on the agricultural front. Hey, Jim, how you doing? Hey, doing great. How are you doing today, Corey? Oh, pretty good, actually. I had a fantastic interview just earlier. Uh, you know, kind of hard subjects, but uh, very worthwhile. Good, good. There's always lots to cover, isn't there? That there is. That there is. So your area of coverage is is the agricultural world and, and trying to track those, those uh, geopolitical issues and, and impact prices. Yeah, so we'll start there today. So uh, on the ag side, uh, especially with the wheat trade, the news is that Russia has renewed their grain corridor that will continue to allow Ukraine to export through the Black Sea region. So the result of that this morning is markets have definitely moved lower. Um, we had a move of 15, 20 cents per bushel US lower on the wheat market. Um, you know, this follows days of uncertainty where there was actually a lot of chop in the markets, um, some fairly good increases uh, as well because uh, there was again that uh and really still is there's still that uneasiness of what's actually going to be able to ship out of those regions so you know so there's some speculation about whether you know why russia does this but um um you know i mean really it, the wheat's probably going to come out of that region one way or another there's plenty of buyers looking for uh, wheat across the world and um, they're buying it from ukraine they're buying it from russia they're buying it from canada it's really a price sensitive market. Now, furthermore, if uh, we take a look at the weather markets um, that have shaped up here, we're at the start of a growing season. Farmers have uh, finished planting their crops or just busy finishing right now. And uh, as you notice, looking out the window, it's a little hot and dry and a little bit smoky in the air. So uh, certainly with it, farmers are worried about moisture conditions, the ability to grow a crop if it stays dry. Um, right now it's still early enough on the calendar. It's only May 17th, um, two weeks from now, three weeks from now, if it's still dry, I hope it's not smoking two, three weeks from now, but it'll certainly look a lot different on grain production. If we move into June, especially middle of June without any significant moisture, then we would be certainly talking drought. Well, I, I guess, uh, you know, weather is one of the things you, you watch for, but as you're kind of saying, don't quite sweat it yet. It's still pretty early and, and that might turn around yet in the next few weeks. Absolutely. Yeah, that's it. Uh, we tend to, um, especially on the farm side, we um, tend to forecast what will happen if uh, weather stays dry rather than what it's doing today. Right now, it's actually still fine. Everything's looking pretty good as far mm -hmm. as Western Canada goes. Great. Well, thank you very much for, for the update this week. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again to see what's happening on the markets next week. 100%. Thanks, Corey. Take care. Great. Thanks. Yeah, bye-bye. So Jim Buzikum of Marketplace Commodities, guys. Check them out, marketplacecommodities.com, and uh, get more detail on all those important issues with your ag business.
Uh, so yeah, let's get on to a few more news items before I wrap things up quickly. I want to talk a little more on the provincial stuff. Some we've been seeing, we're going to talk a little bit about, by the way, the pipeline is our show that comes on uh, a little later on Wednesday nights as well and gets done. Uh, the polls, the Alberta election, boy, the polls, you know, uh, they're all over the map. They are, including even one the Western Standard was involved in. But I mean, we got some polls saying it's 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 a NDP leading by eight points. We've got some polls saying the UCP is leading by seven or eight points. I, I honestly don't know what to believe. Polls, uh, we always love to wrap ourselves around the ones we like and then dismiss the ones we don't. I'm trying to dismiss the whole works because, you know, when you, when you see basically, if you take the outliers on each edge of what's gone on with these polls, you're seeing as much as a 14, 15 point spread. Well, somebody is pretty bloody wrong, aren't they? But we make so many news stories about these polls and try and read into it. I mean, we want to. The polls are important. You want to speculate. You want to see what's working, what's not working, I guess, for campaigns and what's moving along. But man, they are something else. And, and I worked on two different campaigns in the old days of the Wild Rose Party when I was managing a, a couple of campaigns in 2012 and, and uh, 2015. Both times, the polls showed in the ones I was working on, leading by a whole pile for the Wild Rose. We're doing great. We're doing great. Election day came. We got slaughtered. Uh, the municipal polls, I believe those years were terrible too. They, they, they weren't worth a, a crap. So we uh, we'll, we'll still keep talking about them. We report on them, but boy, we just can't rely on them. I mean, I still, I, I, you see them bouncing around, you see them wrong, but often they're all kind of wrong the same way consistently, you know, so they'll all be saying, oh, such and such party is going to win by this amount. And then the election comes on, it turns out almost all of them were totally wrong. In this case though, they're, they're bouncing around like ping pong balls and, and they're giving different numbers all over the place. So I don't know uh, who might, uh, 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 be doing, uh, you know, winning and whatnot. Uh, Charlie Bowie is saying polls mean nothing. Those Dominion voting machines are going to mean everything. Yeah, well, they're not using those in Alberta. Um, but uh, as he said, please vote in person. It's, it's a good idea. Get in there, get in and vote. Put your ballot in. Uh, speaking of that, you know, I was listening. To, there's a, an NDP, uh, I won't even name them, just a, a basically a blog that gets a lot of money from the NDP and the Broadband Institute, and they call themselves a media outlet. They've been going on about, I mean, the conspiracy theories, the conspiracies are now really coming from the left these days. And there, there's a group that was out there pushing for using scrutineers. They're holding webinars talking about how to scrutineer during elections. For people not familiar with it, volunteers go in, you can go in. I've talked about it, I believe, on this show before. If you're with a party, you can register. You can go in in the morning when they open up the, the ballot box, show you it's empty, tape it shut. You can be there to watch every vote all day. You can put people in on shifts. And then you can be there the whole time when the boxes are reopened and those votes are counted. It's actually a very good system. And it allows you to go in and see with your own eyes whether things have looked questionable, aren't questionable. You can ask things. You can, uh, you know, you can't get in people's ways. You can't in intimidate or anything like that but you can be there to supervise. And it's a very important part of the democracy. None of that counting should happen behind closed doors or without you being able to, uh, uh, you know, supervise that. But we don't necessarily get out and do it. So perhaps if there is misgiving, misdoing or, or misdeeds in the elections, well, it's happening because we have to uh, uh, take part. And Charlie's saying those need to be reinstated to every polling station. Yeah, the, the, the uh, scrutineers are still there. They can be. It's just up to you. But this is reported on by Press Progress. Like, this is a conspiracy. This is bad. These guys are tied in with election conspiracy theories. They're not good. No, they aren't. They're just telling people to go out there and take part in the process. And it, it reminds me again of the conspiracies being spread about Take Back Alberta in, in Alberta. They've been doing their thing, getting on the ground, holding their meetings. 
and uh, David Parker runs that. He's, he's more socially conservative than, than my tastes land. But what I'm impressed with is his message isn't about his, 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 his views in social conservatism. It's just saying, get off your butt, use the process, get out there and do it. He's not asking about anything secretive or untoward. And that's what's got them scared, though. You see, the establishment thrives on our apathy. It, it, it makes it by us, due to us sitting on our butts, due to us being indifferent, due to us not getting out there and taking part in the parties or taking part in things like scrutineering during an election. So, all, I mean, when Parker says, hey, get out there and take part in the nominations, get out there and take part uh, in the electing the board of, of your party or your school board or things like that, why is that controversial? I'd be scared of the person who says that's controversial. Why do you thrive on people not using the democratic tools at their disposal? That, that scares me. So either way, that's the latest conspiracy. Oh my lord, scrutineers are somehow going to screw up the process. Sorry guys, no, scrutineers are an integral part of the democratic process. Okay, well, there'll be lots more coming, guys, and lots more coverage. By the way, uh, there's going to be coverage of the debate starting tomorrow at the Western Standard uh, at 540 for those of you guys watching live. It's going to be special coverage covering all of that. Don't forget election night, too. We've got a huge thing going on. i got another show before that happens, but uh, tune in here. Don't waste your time on CBC and all those other outlets. We'll have it here in full and give you... uh, uh, good uh, uh, coverage of the whole thing. Don Sharp saying, is the NDP going to force paramedics back into the hallway because the United Nurses Association is complaining about having to work? Yeah, probably if they get the chance. So let's not give them the chance. Okay, everybody, that was a really packed show. Thank you. And thank you for all that feedback. It was really good, guys. I, I like those questions. Keep them coming every show. I will be back again next week at this time with a whole pile of new stories, another guest, and of course, lots more issues to discuss. So thanks for tuning in, guys, and I'll see you in a week. Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley is steady at 407. Feed wheat remains at 408, and corn is down $2 at 388 per metric ton. In the milling wheat markets, July Minneapolis futures are lower 10 and 3 quarter cents at 868 per bushel with local hard red spring bid for May movement at 10.30 per bushel. Looking at canola, nearby futures slipped 10.20 at 7.19 per tonne, with delivered values for May movement at 16.08 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are trading at 34 cents per pound, and yellow peas are lower 25 cents at 11.25 per bushel. And in the cattle markets, June live cattle are up 85 cents at 164.73 per hundred weight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Musicum at Marketplace Commodities. Accurate, real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada. And more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. Become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny.